Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnett. Hi. Hello. And Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. A good yontif to you. Yeah. It's not a yontif. It is to every day. Every, every day is a Every day is a good day. Every recording day, day is a yontif. Today we'll be talking with Sports Illustrated Editor and Jew, Don Wertheim, author of a new book about the psychology of sports, and with Princeton African American Studies Professor Imani Perry, who is the daughter of a Jewish dad, proving once again that we can't spot a guest Gentile if we try. A little news of the Jews to start off. The regents at the University of California voted to approve a statement condemning anti-Semitism, but maintaining sort of that anti-Zionism is sort of allowed. They kind of punted on that one. Both sides seem to think. Tablet's very own Yair Rosenberg has made some list of the 25 biggest influencers in Jewish Twitter. Sexiest people in Twitter. (laughs) Sexiest people in Twitter. Um, And, you know, perhaps most important, Though what is there to be said about it? Uh, future first daughter Ivanka Trump Kushner has birthed. Just out of curiosity, what yeah, what is what? that <laughs> accent? Is it part Swedish, part German, part my you accent know? just there? Yeah, it was Israeli. All my all my accents are just a different region <laughs> <That> of Israel. <laughs> Ivanka, Ivanka, the, the Ivanka has birthed uh, Jew, the baby, Jew grandson Theodore James Kushner. Not no, a Jewish name. Not a Jewish name. That's Although, all I'll say. I don't, well, Teddy Kushner, it's a good suburban Jewish. The future, I feel like I went to prom with him. The I, future Obersturmenführer <laughs> of the United States of America. Yeah. To which Donald Trump said, made some comment about, my daughter just gave birth to my beautiful Jewish grandson, which is a weird thing to say. It's like literally give it a rest. Yeah, like literally nobody. I tell no, you, he's the greatest Jew. <laughs> he's huge. That reminds me, was it, it was, uh, it was George H.W. Bush who talked about Jeb's kids as the little brown ones. You guys remember that? He was, no. He's, yeah, he's, he, those were they, his, they don't make him like Poppy anymore. They just don't make. I hope we well, got invited to the bris. I, and how come there's no discussion anywhere about about the Jewish name? I mean, presumably, well, there's no bris yet. But I hope that on the eighth day, perhaps by the time you good people are listening to this, we will know that Theodore James Kushner is in fact like Mordechai. Yeah, he's he's like Mordechai Chaim Ben Jared Kushner. Ben Jared Ivanka. Ben Jared Kushner. What is Ivanka's Jew name, I wonder, when she converted? This Can we is give one... her one? Let's give are her... we at liberty? Let's think we about are that. the, the Let's... most, you know, predominant Jewish authority <laughs> in the land. We may as well. <laughs> Listeners, uh let us let us Hebrewize Ivanka. Uh call us uh, by the way, this is in one of the most unorthodox moments ever. This is my mother calling. <laughs> Uh, live, Leo, Leo's live, cell phone live just went air. off. Um, and so, uh, write to us and tell us what Ivanka's Hebrew name should be. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Uh, but we want you to write to us, not the weird artificial intelligence bot that Microsoft loosed upon the land earlier this week. Microsoft has apologized after poor little Tay, uh, their AI chat robot, became a Hitler loving sex robot within 24 hours of being let loose on the unsuspecting of the world. I don't fully understand what happened here, so I'm going to defer to Liel or Stephanie to explain <laughs> WTF. Like I'm deferring to Liel. Liel, what, what on earth happened here? Well, you know, the, the really... I literally have a PhD in this shit. <laughs> and you have really no idea what happened isn't here. any other explanation except for this piece of artificial intelligence fully comprehended the essence of the internet. <laughs> it started off as a blank slate. It was like, what is this thing about? It was a Twitter bot, Oh, right? it's about Hitler. Because you know, well, it started. It started with Katy Perry. Like that's where Wait, the but, okay. Ate, like, what for uh, for our listeners like me who don't know? Like started the. It's it was tweeting. So stuff, I right? don't have a PhD in this, but the idea was that you would sort of like tweet at this bot and 
you would sort of like talk, it would talk, the more you talk to it, the more it would learn and the more it would talk back to you. So kind of like a Furby, like in my day. Uh-huh. Um, but so you'd say like, <laughs> this music is cool. This music is not cool. And then like, I think. And they would tweet back, LOL, this yeah, music like, sucks. Yeah, like, hey, S-U-X. I'm new on here. What's up? So tweet one was like, Katy Perry is a good artist. Tweet two was like, you should really go on Instagram. Uh, tweet three was like, Hitler was absolutely correct. <laughs> Uh, and that's kind of is a trajectory of every conversation on the internet, <laughs> no yeah, matter what. Like peak internet, it yeah. was awful. I wish they. Had and let... then they had to shut it down. He was like, she was like, okay, enough for me, bye. <laughs> was that her final tweet? Yes. It was like, peace out. Microsoft was like, oh, we've we've created <laughs> literally <laughs> a, a monster. Nazi software. <laughs> I wish they let it live, right? Wouldn't it, like what would it be doing now? It would be it would running be against Donald Trump of America. <laughs> is what it would be doing now. It would be winning sixty eight. Can you imagine the, the movie vote. where like Tay is the one thing that can stop Donald Trump? There's only one kind of dance, the robot. Oh, and the robo. Oh, and the rope. Two kinds of dances. But there are no more humans. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. Since you've mentioned Yair Rosenberg, I mean, if you go on, on Yair's uh, Twitter feed and you see like the kind of stuff others. that people uh, tweet at him, it is basically all tays. It is basically all... But like, like real human taste. Real human people being like, get out of America, you kike. It's all that. And what's great is By that- the way, have you ever said kike on you? I don't I think that's a first for us. I've never even actually like really heard that word. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it so nineteen like sixties. Like, yeah, like a scary word that like I've some been, people used to say. I've been getting it since I started writing about Trump. I've been getting it about so, five hundred times. I mean, day. I think the biggest thing that's happening to people like Jewish people with Jewish sounding names who write about write critically about Trump, even tweet about them, get like a slew. I think we've talked about this, like a slew of oh, yeah. neo Nazi anti Semites, and it's like the one candidate you can write about and then get that. Like no one else. That's really interesting. They follow, they, yeah, they follow Trump. It's really interesting. It's, a, and it's almost like he excites the white national like, supremacist. The best thing about Yair is that he like engages these people. Right, oh. <laughs> totally like, and he writes back, and he messes with them. So Yair will, will write back like, you know, hey, I'd love to stay and chat, but I got to go to the secret meeting where we plan the bank situation. And then they write back and like, you admitted it, you admitted it. And then he says, you have no sense of irony. And then they say, what's irony? And they, it, it's... He has a lot of time on his hands. By which, again, we come back to the first point, which is these people basically are just subpar artificial intelligence <laughs> software people. Um, for people with too much time on their hands, there's an extensive new website, the Jewish Baseball Museum. I think it's it's jewishbaseballmuseum.com, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and basically, the idea of the founder was that um, since the actual Baseball Hall of Fame only has Sandy Koufax and Hank Greenberg, although more Jews are coming, right? I mean, don't, some of the the recent spate are gonna gonna make it. Kevin right? Euclid. Will Euclid make it? Is he should make it? I mean, you know, there, there are more Uke. coming. He's but a right now, Jew. this is one of the things I say at risk of receiving no a, a lot of angry email. Uh, I think there are two Jews in the Hall of Fame, but now at JewishBaseballMuseum.com, they're all Jewish. They're all Jewish. It's biographies of all the Jews who ever made it to the big leagues. Why is there a market for this? Why does this exist? I don't know. I think there's like this weird overcorrection of like, no, Jews are good at sports, and it's like, okay, we get it. That's like we. I think we universally accept that. That like the whole like joke about Jewish jocks is not really real anymore. But I did go straight to the source on this. I went to former tablet writer Mark Tracy, um, who has edited the book. Jewish doc. Jewish Who's literally the, the literally, literally the, the guy. Yeah. So I yep. went to him and I said, "What do you think of this museum?" And he says, 
And I read, my greatest hope is that the Jewish Baseball Museum will rectify one of the most egregious errors that the Baseball Hall of Fame has committed and prominently feature Marvin Miller, the Bronx labor lawyer who gave the Players Union teeth and helped invent free agency and who was written about in Jewish Jocks by Dahlia Lithwick. Marvin Miller. In Scotland, the Jews now have their own tartan. Uh, the Jewish Telegraph put several designs for a kilt online. 10,000 people voted. A winner was announced, and the new kilt will be marketed. It will um, adhere to the laws of Shotness, which means that, that wool and linen will not be mixed in it. It will be 100% wool so that Orthodox Jews can wear it, uh, that they can swing free and in fealty to the Mosaic law in these kilts. Proceeds will go to various Jewish causes, Scottish friends of the IDF or whatever. Um, <laughs> and the tartan has been registered with the Scots, uh, with the Scottish Tartan Bureau or whatever. I have to say, by the way, Scotland is my favorite non-American country. The Department I, of Tartan. Tar- the Department of Tartans. I love Scotland. It's my. I think the people are friendly. They start what? drinking at eight in the morning. Just and, like just like you. Just like me. And um, but I think it's weird. I feel like the people who wear tartans should be named McClenahan and McDougalhan. And I, I don't, Jews, we are a wandering tribe. That's we so don't, Hebrew normative of you. It's, I just feel like. Right, it's it's not like we ever put on any weird articles of clothing. And but we have our own. you're saying that we shouldn't fit in in the, in the societies in which we live. I'm saying we have our own weird articles of yeah, clothing. Yeah, but it's basically. We're not a, Scot- Scottish Mark, Jews are not tartan wearers. It's basically a lower tallis. It's a lower body <laughs> tallis is all it is. Think and of I'm it just as glad that. people wear like shirts under their tallises. You're just <laughs> so. Wait, the question is: Could you combine them? Could your? Of course, you your, could have a onesie. It's your a kilt tallest be, tartan. Your, your kilt could be fringed. Yeah, it could be blue and white. It could obey all the laws of tzitzit and all the laws of shatnas, and you're and like a total kosher superhero. And could the hoodie be your yarmulke? I think so. This would be amazing. What would his name be, readers? What would the Scottish Jewish superheroes? Name be right to us. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. This weekend, Liel will be at Brandeis University for a conference on Israel and the media. And Lots. at Harvard also. And at Harvard. Okay. So Google Liel and Harvard and Brandeis and you can go see him in person. He'll give will you give a hug to anyone who shows up with the code tabletmag? A, a bear hug. A bear hug. Uh, April seventh, we will all be at the Oshman Family Jewish Community Center in Palo Alto. Coding. April 19th, I'll be in Williamstown. And May 16th, we will be at our rescheduled event at the American Hebrew Academy in North Carolina. Stephanie, are you still accepting invitations to bat mitzvahs in, yes. the, in the tri-state area? I am. How far will you travel? I'm pretty far. Pretty far? Depends, okay. on what, like, depends on what I'm doing that weekend. If they send a car for you. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm a wanderer. Yeah, a wanderer. Our guest Jew today. Is, have you ever been our guest Jew before? I did not realize I was coming in under those pretenses. You but, are Jewish, uh, right? I, will, uh, I, I am indeed, so okay. I'll happily accept. Our guest Jew today is Sports Illustrated Executive Editor L. John Wertheim. What's the L for? Ooh, Lewis, now that the statute of limitations has lapsed. <laughs> but we're going to call you LeJohn. Your sports name is clearly <laughs> LeJohn Wertheim, whose new book, co-written with Sam Summers, is called This Is Your Brain on Sports. The Long, long subtitle coming up here. The Science of Underdogs, The Value of Rivalry, and What We Can Learn from the T-Shirt Canon. Congratulations on the new book. Thanks. Can you tell us? So I I read the book, and we're going to get to Mookie Wilson and bar mitzvah appearances by athletes and good-looking quarterbacks in a second. But how would you sum up what the book's about? Basically, plenty of us like sports. 
it has this escapist quality. There's all sorts of aspects of sports on its face. They seem very irrational. In fact, not so. So the idea was to sort of look at all the crazy shit that goes on in sports, whether it's fans painting their faces, which is sort of cliche, but more importantly, athletes' performance, coaching, what's really going on here? And um, the, I teamed with a social psychologist, and the idea was to sort of break down some of these these tropes and some of these on their face quirky aspects of sports and figure out what's what's really at play. All right, before we even before we even get before to we book, get to which, the, which is an amazing amazing yeah. book, but but this kind of feeds into into this question that I have. You know, here you are teaming up with a psychologist and. Looking at you, I don't think most people imagining the executive editor of Sports Illustrated would imagine someone who looks like you. You look like you could teach econ at Princeton, oh, like geez. right now. You're no, a, but like the cool professor. Right. Yeah, you're you a know, dapper you're, intellectual. You, you look like that is the world you inhabit. And, and the book is, you know, so, uh, it, you know, immensely erudite and, 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 and thoughtful and well-researched, which is not to say that you can't be that way about sports. In fact, I know that some of the best writing about any subject would be that regardless. But h- how did you get to be the guy at Sports Illustrated? Was that a childhood dream of oh, yours? Geez. Are you one of those obsessives who are thinking about sports at 14 every day? Is, is that 14? He was thinking about it at four. He came out of the womb. His dad put a tennis racket in his hand. And a pencil. And a pencil. <laughs> if, you, <laughs> right. if you said to my dad, who is Michael Jordan? I would give 50-50 odds. He would say the the singer who does the moonwalk, who, uh, who sings, who sings <laughs> beat it. I, I was not, uh, I do not come from athletic stock. Um, no, I really came at it more from, uh, from writing than from a sports perspective. And I'm a, uh, I'm a law school exile and realized very quickly after a summer in a law firm, this was not how I was going to spend the next 40 years and, um, sort of lucked into a internship at Sports Illustrated and, been there ever since. So what's what's the office culture like in Sports Illustrated? But like, I you feel guys like you're just... expecting like meatheads in like like lacrosse pennies. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm, I'm expecting that. like, like stat nerds with like, like you know calculators with like you know kind of like jock obsessives with. I don't know what I'm expecting. Like, I'm what, what do you think? I mean, I'd love to turn that question to, around to someone else. Be like, what do you think tablet office looks like? There are rows of pews, and uh, right. there's, there's... <laughs> you guys still have a mikvah tablet? One of the early chapters in your book, it's actually your first chapter, I think, you led with the really, really good stuff, though there's good stuff throughout, is tackling the question, why are quarterbacks the best-looking people on the team? And you conclude that, in fact... Well, first of all, before before we get to what you conclude, you did a fairly scientific online survey in which you asked people to rank the attractiveness of quarterbacks. So, so tell us about that experiment. The, the notion you... is you know, we have this archetype, right, of the, the good-looking quarterback, and it's true in movies, and it's true in pop culture, and our idea was, is this really so? So we devised this experiment, sort of a blind taste test. This was the, you know, this is this is Mark Oppenheimer's Facebook, uh, this is his Yale Facebook from uh, the mid-90s, just a photo, <laughs> go rank these, you know, literally go go through and rank these photos. And what we realized was that quarterbacks were not, in fact, by position, the the best looking position in this blind taste test. And then the question became, okay, well, why do we have this archetype? That's I bl- what it really I blame got Tom Brady. Tom Brady skewed things. I, I, it was not the man bun Tom Brady. <laughs> it was like pre-ug like wearing Out, Tom Brady. Outlaw. What is the most attractive position in football then? It, I mean, it varies. We, we also had to, we realized we had to rule out linemen because they were so abnormally large, people right. would peg them as football players. Um, big necks. Wide res- yeah, exactly. The, or, or lack thereof. They've got no problem in that department. Let me tell you. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> um, it was wide receivers. But what was really interesting is we, we said, well, what? Okay, well, what's driving this notion that quarterbacks are good looking? So then we replicated this and we said, just based on the snapshot, assess the leadership ability. Sort of, does this guy look like a leader? 
and quarterbacks were the highest in that position. So what we surmise is that there are a few things going on. One is this halo effect. We love the quarterback. It's the face of the franchise. Tom Brady, probably objectively a good-looking guy, but the fact that he's the most important position on the field and the leader of the team in the face of the franchise, we probably conflate good looks with that. And also, at some level, we're probably confusing with leadership qualities with physical attractiveness. One of my favorite parts of the book is that it actually answers a question I've had for a long time, which is when you're at like a Knicks game and you see people in the front row, bless their hearts, and they go crazy when the t-shirt cannon comes out. And <laughs> it's like it's like one of these like extra large t-shirts that says like, it's really ugly. It doesn't even look good. It's like not even the nice like American apparel one. It's like a really old school t-shirt. And people go nuts for the t-shirt cannon. And I don't understand. I just never understood it. And I would always see it and be like, how are these people paying so much for these t- seats and going crazy over this free t-shirt? We looked at that. This is, this is one of the great promotions. And I think it's completely by accident and not by design, but the, the T-shirt has these these two components to it. One is scarcity. You know, it's not like if they gave everybody a T-shirt and it was sitting there on your front row seat when you arrived, you'd be like, nah, that's all right. You'd, you'd give it to the kid next to you. But there are only eight of them, so they've got to be really important. This is marketers, you know, this is limited time offer and a special souvenir edition. There are only eight of them. And the other thing is that our behavior changes dramatically when things are free. And if they said, if you catch this shirt, you could give the usher a nickel and you had to keep it, people would be like, nah, no, no thanks, I'm good. But the fact that it's free, we think we're pulling one over. It's why we go to Trader Joe's and wait in line for food that we don't necessarily want at the sample station. It's why we sign up for credit cards that come with a tote bag. And so these stupid shirts that are flung out, you're right, they're of uh, indiscriminate size. They're not particularly nice. They have some corporate sponsor on the back. I don't, I don't know if anyone, I don't see people wearing these around town. But you throw them out in the middle of a game, it doesn't matter if the home team's winning, it doesn't matter if it's minor league baseball or if it's Knicks, people go crazy for the t-shirt cannon. Scarcity, or the illusion of scarcity plus free, makes us do really irrational things. Now, I'm asking this question of someone who, I've learned from your book, purchased for his son's bar mitzvah a phone call to his son from Mookie Wilson because your son I, I a... didn't do this. This was a gift from from uh, from someone else. Oh, you didn't buy it. I wouldn't do that. Um, but here's my question about that. Are Jews overrepresented in sports fandom? Is there is there a Jewish fandom nexus at all? I would love to see a real academic tackle this. Uh, but to answer your question, I, I would hazard to guess that uh, Jews are very well represented as sports fans, if not as athletes. And the the natural follow up to that is what is the most goyish sport? Where do you see Jews just not giving a fig? There's Remember no... the Tracy Morgan has a routine about lacrosse, uh, which I will not repeat here. But um, <laughs> that that springs to mind. You you could do some substitutions, and I'm not sure the uh, the Venn diagram of Jews and lacrosse is particularly well no, shaded. That's a good one because it's like they go to like Del Barton or like they go to these schools that like I don't think Jewish kids go to. I also heard a theory about uh, you know Jew, Jews and Jewish mothers plus helmet sport. So if you, if you, have no to wear, if you have to wear a helmet, no helmet sports. That would right. account for why I, I always felt that the most goyish sport was ice hockey. Growing up in Massachusetts, where there are a lot of ice hockey players, it struck me that none of them were Jews. I've since been corrected by a lot of people my age. Oh, no, no, my fan. We were rabid Bruins fans. But I, it just feels goyish to me. It just, I just don't think a Jewish family should go to hockey games. John, I, I need psychological help. I mean, in many ways, but I need specific help from you. Um, I experienced some really strange emotions uh, last October, which I can't really come to terms with. You see, for for some years now, I'm a fan of what some might call a sports team, the New York uh, Mets. 
Uh, and I have a very comfortable relations for at least a decade in which, you know, they set up very high hopes and then they crush them in spectacular, unprecedented fashion. And you come to love and you come to expect this. Some would call it, uh, as you have so graciously in your book, uh, uh, an underdog phenomenon. And here they are uh, in, in the World Series. And strange things happen because I, I don't know how to deal with victory. I don't know how to deal with that. W- what's, what's up with the underdog? Why do we like it so much? Actually, I mean, interesting Israeli study on this, where two teams, they say, Here, here's Maccabi Tel Aviv, and they're playing a basketball team from Moscow. Maccabi's the underdog. They haven't won in actually 15 years. And everybody says, oh, I want those guys to win. They take another sample size. They say, you know what? Here's this, this Russian team and this Israeli team from Tel Aviv. They've been beating 15 years in a row. Everybody switches their allegiance to the, to the other side. So why is it that we just reflexively root for the underdog? And it doesn't just that we root for the underdog. We visualize their performance differently. They showed this group two different plays. One, the underdog was making the play. People said, oh, that's a feisty, scrappy team. I love these guys. <laughs> exact same play. But they said, oh, this is the favorite. They said, oh, those guys are dirty. Look how hostile. They're aggressive. So it, it, it's not just that we root for the underdog. It changes our perception of what we see. We say, well, why is this? And I, I think there are a few things going on. One of them we love what the underdog stands for, and it's anyone can topple giant. I think there's a sympathy in rooting for the underdog and that sort of this is this is the little guy. He can do it. This is also, you know, brands have picked this up. Hollywood's picked this up. Every you know, Bill, Bill, we always use the example in the book. I think of Bill Clinton. He never says, "Oh, I was a Rhodes Scholar and went to Yale Law School and was governor." But I was forty. He's just the guy from Hope, Arkansas, just the, the little little the guy. Come back, kid. Yeah, yeah. We're born in a log cabin. Um, but the, but the underdog is it's, it's sort of a quirk in sports because so often we're exactly the opposite. We tout our designer brands and drive our luxury sports cars. We want to, you know, project an image of success. Why, when it comes to rooting for teams, do we often choose? Why would teams? we put up a Mets cap and be like, "Hey, I really like this yeah, thing I, that spends eight hundred and fifty million dollars a year and gets absolutely nothing for it"? And it's based Yay, in you. I, I say the Mets. The Mets are sort of a faux underdog, right? I agree with that. Yeah, like I feel like people there's like this like martyr complex that Mets fans have, and it's like, all right, come on. I felt that way about the Red Sox growing up in Massachusetts too. Yeah, you look at their they, payroll and look at the, the yeah. these, like these sponsors. Fine. Yeah, exactly. they're fine. They're you're not fine. an underdog. You're just not really good at what you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry. You just suffer from mediocrity of the soul. I know you have to go. L. John Wertheim, Lewis John Wertheim. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> your new book, "This Is Your Brain on Sports," uh, is great. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Our guest Gentile today is Imani Perry, who's not really a Gentile. Well, she's she's mostly Gentile. She was raised Catholic, but her dad was Jewish. She's professor of African-American studies at Princeton, and she's the author of two books, including Prophets of the Hood, Politics and Poetics in Hip Hop. And we're thrilled to have her on. Hi, Imani. Hi, how are you? How's your throat? You feeling all right? Um, it's okay. It sounds worse than it feels. Okay. You have like a really good rasp going, though. I yeah. like it. Wow, it sounds so cool. <laughs> Go cut your album right now. Yeah. <laughs> Very Macy Gray. All right. Um, so tell us what you're teaching right now. Are you teaching this year at Princeton? Are you on sabbatical? Or Yeah, I'm on leave this year. I'm on sabbatical, and I've been writing. So what's the book um, you're working on? Uh, two. So there's one book that I'm working on, which is a history of the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is known as the Black National Anthem and was previously known as the Negro National Anthem. It's 116 years old. And then I'm also working on a book that's kind of about... Um, gender politics in the 
digital age in the context of the changes in the political economy, et cetera, et cetera. So very different topics. So since you write on politics, we can't not talk about the election. Um, what are your thoughts on on the Hillary-Bernie divide right now? I mean, this is something that's I feel like my Facebook feed is nothing but people arguing about who's voting for whom and why and right. all this acrimony. I'm sure yours is the same. What's your take on this? You know, it's it's interesting. It's it, it's uncomfortable how um, intense the acrimony is um, between, you know, Hillary and Bernie supporters uh, on a certain level. It's there's a, a meaningful fight happening between what the, the Democratic Party used to be in terms of, you know, um, with the focus on on labor and working people and equity and security for those who are struggling and uh, a new version of the party, which I think is very progressive, very socially progressive, um, socially liberal, but also aligned with, you know, with free markets and um, movement globalization and all those sorts of things. And so there's a I think there's a meaningful battle going on. I don't think that often the person to person conversations wind up getting um, to the substance of that, though, they seem really sort of often kind of personal attacks. So what's going on in the black community with regard to this? That's actually where I see some of the biggest yeah. fighting That is that, you know, there seems to be a <laughs> lot of, I mean, I don't think they actually know. You'll see these things that say, well, in the southern states, Hillary is winning, and that's where you have more black voters. So the blacks mm-hmm. are for Hillary. But then, you know, you'll also see people coming in with other statistics saying, well, but you look at these surveys and every black human being under the age of 50 is voting for Bernie or something. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I do think, you know, I was born in Alabama, and um, in, that's a state where I think 90% of the black voters voted for Hillary. But I think it's interesting. I, I mean, I do think that there is um, overwhelming support for Hillary Clinton in the black community, even though for people who are younger and millennials, that sort of um, breaks up a bit. Um, and I'm honestly, um, I'm not entirely sure why, because at a policy level, I think the policies that um, Bernie is proposing are, for the most part, sort of more aligned with the politics of the majority of Black Americans. But I think that he um, has been less sort of sophisticated about talking about race, and perhaps it's also the question of familiarity. Um, but it is. But I do think it's a, there's a problem um, because if you have these these places where the overwhelming majority of people vote for one candidate or the other, then it's very hard to use one's uh, community's vote strategically to, in order to get something, you know, the, that there that there's a need to be an ask. And I think that's one of the things, problems that happened with black communities and President Obama, that there weren't many moments of asking for things because there was such overwhelming support. I have, I'm sorry, go ahead, Leo. So I, I, I would like to change topics here uh, with, with respect to, too my, much, two, too much to, my, two, to my two nerdy <laughs> friends, uh, my two nerdy Democrat <laughs> friends. Uh, you know, your book about hip hop is really, you know, super cool. Uh, look, I, I, I need some help here. I grew up in Israel. Um, my dad went to jail. I discovered hip hop because the inside of my head, you know, visiting him every week sounded much more like NWA than it did like the shit my friends were listening to. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I became a really, 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 you know, enthusiastic, uh, fan. Uh, but I, you know, not growing up here, I realized I lack a lot of the cultural, connotations. And so help me out here. Why is it cool for Johnny Cash to say I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die and he's, you know, a a legend and an icon of our culture. But when, you know, people say similar things in in hip hop, it somehow represents, you know, thug culture. 
I think there's two different ways to answer that. I think on the one hand, you know, there's a, a long history in this country of a depiction of black people as dangerous, as threatening, as hyper-violent, and black men in particular as hyper-masculine. And so there's a way in which the most mainstream of hip-hop coincides with stereotypical depictions that have that have been trafficked in. So on the one hand, you know, people people love it and people also hate it, you know, that it becomes something that that is consumed. It's, you know, the largest consumers of hip-hop obviously are not black people and they couldn't be it's a, you know given how incredibly popular it is so they're images that satisfy um, people's desires and fantasies on the other hand for critics oftentimes who are coming from black communities there's a concern that the glorification uh, of some of what you get in hip-hop can be tragic given all of the the kind of devastation the poverty rates of incarceration and also violence that exists within black communities on the margins that, you know, there are people who say, you know, we would be better off with another set, more hopeful set of representations. So I have to ask you about Drake. Um, Drake yeah. is Jewish. We've, <laughs> uh, the Jewish community has like, 100% embraced him as their own. And I think in a way because... By which Stephanie means Stephanie. Is no, exactly. but I'm, I'm, saying, I'm <laughs> saying that like, you know, as a... As a Jewish. No, as, as someone who's listened to hip hop, but understood that this is, you know, from a community that is not my own for a community that is not my own and and even the act of listening is sort of appropriative in in some ways i'm aware of all of that for some reason i think for a lot of like you know white jewish people drake like opens some channels for us i think she's asking do you listen to drake as a half jew or as a black woman <laughs> no i'm just i'm just i just want to know i mean because i don't listen to drake at all but i think that's i think that was that's what the I right wanted answer to know. <laughs> <laughs> um i think it's my, my son my younger son likes drake and doesn't like any criticisms I have. So I'm not, so I will not say anything negative about Drake because I appreciate his musical taste and, and yours as well. Um, but yeah, but I think it's interesting sort of how now we are understanding how much more, I mean, hip hop has always been comprised of complex identities and it's always been, there's always been transnational people. There've always been multiracial people in it, but I think there isn't now, there are more conversations about it. So it's interesting to hear that it provides kind of an entry point to, um, a different kind of entry point to the music. All right, so before we move on, very quickly, top five MCs. Oh gosh, I can't ever do this. Really? I really can't. You wrote I the can't. like no, literally. I mean, you I wrote can't. the book. <laughs> I mean, Rakim is always on the list. Uh, Nas and Biggie, and then the other two, it becomes really difficult because there's such an amazing array, you know, of artists from, you know, the Backpackers, and I have to say, rest in peace, Fife. He was amazing. Um, Chaos One is amazing. I love Lauren Hill. I love MC Light. Those are the people I mostly identify with. So I just can't do top five. <laughs> Imani Perry, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good luck on the two books you're trying to finish at once. Thank you so much. Take care, guys. How many times I gotta warn you about the light? It'll blind your sight, but the rhythm will still guide you through the night. Kick, 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 kick. Issue 2 of the print magazine is out next week. If you want to subscribe, text tablet to 66866 or go to tabletmag.com. It is gorgeous. Last week when we talked about our waspy name generator, we got a lot of mail. Much of it was correcting me uh, for my mistake that if you chose a last name based on your freshman dorm, you would necessarily end up with a waspy name. 
lots of people wrote to say, not if you went to NYU, where you could be named after your freshman dorm, Weinstein. So my apologies to all of the NYU alumni out there. Your WASPy name is not that WASPy. But for most every other college in the world, if you name yourself after your freshman dorm, you end up with a WASPy last name. One reader wrote to say, um, I'm a Gentile and I need a Jewish name. Could you come up with a name generator that will an algorithm that will give me a um, a Jewish last name? Did, did either of you come up with anything? I did. Okay, Stephanie, how, how well, could you Well, because last week I really just used the poor name generator, which I found also works really well for wasp names, okay. just saying. Okay, so I have one for men. You take your favorite Old Testament dude, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Jacob. You make it the like the nickname version of that, so A.B. And then this is Ashkenormative, I admit it. You take like the most Jewish food you could think of, kugel, matzah, blintz, and then you add man at the end. So you get like A.B. Kugelman or like Joey Matzaman. And that's how you get Joey Matzaman. <laughs> Sounds like, you know, the guy Mar- the Marvel Universe never got around to. Isaac Blintzman. And today, Matzaman <laughs> will fight the Shatnez monster. Okay. And, and here's mine. Mine works only, yours works only for men. Yeah. Mine works only for women. Okay. Um, <clears throat> here's what you do. You take the first name of a prominent second wave feminist. So Gloria Steinem, Susan Brownmiller, Letty Cotton Pogerbin, Betty Friedan. And then you take the last name of a defunct local department store. So if you grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, you would take Steiger. If you're from Queens, you would take Gertz. If you're from Portland, Oregon, you take Meyer. And you put them together. So you could be Gloria Steiger. You could be Letty Gertz. Uh, you could be uh, Susan Meyer. And that, that's how you would do it. It's, it's like second wave feminist first name, defunct department store last name. You two completely rocked it. I have little to add. Mine is just emotional. Just you know, close your eyes and imagine you, you owned a bank or a Hollywood studio. Just you know, channel your inner, channel your inner Zion, elder of Zion, and you'll you'll get to something. He's on Twitter. Good. Yeah. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions for our panel of experts, please send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Be warned, we might read it on the air. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine. It's edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivry and Alyssa Goldstein. Rabbinic supervision this week is from our listeners and letter writers, Sam Menick and Leon Crime and Linda Yancey. They sent us awesome letters. Kosher slaughtering by our brilliantly named letter writer, Diana Muchnik. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. Shalom, friends. <laughs>